0: This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance, talking today about some very interesting methods that have been used to either create insurance fraud or excuse insurance fraud. One of the excuses was the case of, well, we all do it, fraud. The California Supreme Court, in a case called Casim v. Allstate Insurance Company, decided in July of 2004 that a trial verdict of bad faith against an insurer that it found was based upon prejudicial final argument, leading the jury to believe that some fraud is permissible found it was not and cited the following argument from plaintiff's counsel who said, quote, now let's talk about intentional misrepresentation for a second. I think we have a direct analogy to what goes on in this case. Let's think of this for a second, if you would. Just think, you're at a job. You've worked at it real hard. You're a good employee. And then a new boss comes along. He doesn't like you. Maybe it's because of your sex, your race, or whatever. And he discharges you. And he wrongfully discharged you. And you go to get a lawyer. And you sue for wrongful discharge. And your employer does what Allstate has done here. They look under every rock you were ever under. Look at every skeleton everything in your life that they can use and they go and they do a check and they say oh you were on jury duty in a case called Cassim. okay and they say you were supposed to be on jury duty but there's a couple of days in which there wasn't court but you said you were on jury duty and we paid you that's a misrepresentation defense counsel objections saying, your honor, I'm going to object. This is improper argument. Plaintiff's counsel said, I don't think so. And the court overruled the objection. Plaintiff's counsel went on and they said, they will take something like Allstate has done here, the mortgage file or whatever. It's even worse what they've done here and say, we have grounds now to fire you because you misrepresented about your being on jury duty on certain days, and you got paid when you really weren't on jury duty. And you say, but but, but, Judge Chernoff said it was okay. He says what I was doing was appropriate. And he says, no, you intentionally misrepresented. I didn't misrepresent anything. I thought that was the right thing to do. She said I didn't misrepresent anything. I was relying on Tony Thompson. I thought it was the right thing to do. I didn't intend to fool anybody in your whole career. Bang, you're out. Isn't that what they've done here? They want to put an artificial standard on what is meant by intentional misrepresentation. A standard that would apply in a courtroom setting like this that we would never apply to ourselves, that we would not think that anything was intentional or wrong in that regard. But in trying to carry the burden of proof, when they have this kinds of flimsy crap evidence, when they haven't done what they should have done and they're doing this lawyer's thing, they will have you now crucify these people with an extraordinary artificial interpretation of what is intentional misrepresentation, and that is not fair. Close quote. The Supreme Court and Qasem concluded that the argument was prejudicial and reversed the trial court that assessed punitive damages against the insurer. And it said, Quote, here in a case where fraud in an insurance claim was a primary issue in the case, counsel for plaintiff went right to the fact that the jurors had been essentially cheating their employers. When counsel made reference to the fact that some of the insurers might be accused of cheating, there was no question he was letting the jurors know that the court had no objections to the procedure. When the objection was sustained, there was nothing else counsel could do except object again, which would have had the effect of drumming home to the jury that the court thought a little cheating was permissible. Since the issue was whether plaintiff had attempted to cheat in their claim to Allstate, the prejudice was obvious. And that's why they reversed the judgment. The law in California, as it should be everywhere, is that an insured cannot commit a little fraud. You can either commit fraud or you do not. You cannot commit a little fraud any more than you can be a little dead. You did it or you didn't. You're alive or you're not. If you commit fraud, Regardless of the bad faith of the insurer, you recover nothing. Now, for some reason, courts and legislatures and insurance departments have decided to define fraud into two types. Soft fraud and hard fraud. The following types of fraud are called hard fraud because they are premeditated and intentionally committed. Those who differentiate between types of fraud would always place these in the category of hard fraud, which to courts and legislatures and insurance departments is more egregious than soft fraud, since it is performed with malice of forethought. Hard fraud takes planning, scheming, and even someone on the inside to help you get money from an insurance company it does not owe. An example of hard fraud would be getting into an accident on purpose so that you can claim the insurance money. The example is fairly prevalent lately Someone hits the brakes so that the person behind them can't stop quickly enough, and then they call it a negligent rear-ender. Another really severe form of hard fraud would be faking your own death or murder for the life insurance benefit. Another hard fraud is the staged loss. Some losses are simply fictions created for the sole purpose of presenting a claim. Some of those stage losses include the stage theft of an auto, a theft where the owner contracts with an intermediary to dispose of a vehicle. The owner gives up the vehicle and then reports it to the insurer as stolen. The person to whom the vehicle is given up will pass it to a salvor who breaks it up into its component parts and sells the parts. These organizations are called chop shops. Stage theft also includes cases where the insured ships an auto to Mexico, China, Vietnam, or other foreign country, where it is sold, after which the insured makes a claim reporting the vehicle stolen. All stage thefts are planned and performed for the sole purpose of defrauding an insurer. According to the evidence adduced at a trial, the defendants in a case called United States versus Hawley and United States versus Hall and United States versus Beasley, the courts found that the stage theft of a truck belonging to defendant Beasley was staged. Any of the error claimed by Beasley in the trial was harmless in light of the other overwhelming evidence of Beasley's guilt that was introduced at trial and the cumulative nature of the evidence. As an example of such a claim was explained in a fictional piece in my book, Heads, I Win, Tales You Lose, a fictional Mr. Lee enlisted some of his friends in the Chinese community of Los Angeles to join in his scheme to defraud insurers. They found that all luxury cars were needed in China and enormous profits could be made if duties were not paid. They began their scheme by leasing luxury cars. Between them, 200 Lexus, Mercedes, Audi, Jaguar, and Infiniti automobiles were leased and insured with major insurers. After making no more than two payments on the auto loans or on the leases, Lee's group began placing the cars in shipping containers at the ports of Los Angeles, Long Beach, and San Francisco. Lee's cousin transported the cars from Hong Kong and Macau to mainland China, where she sold them for hard currency. To finance the purchase of more cars, Lee's group reported the theft of each car to their insurer and had the loans paid off. They were always easy to deal with and never argued with the adjuster's suggested settlement. The conspirators knew they would profit on the sale in Hong Kong. They would replace the car with another leased with the insurance money and start the process all over again. Mr. Lee's cousin was the number one luxury car dealer in all of the People's Republic of China. She had no competition and an almost unlimited supply of vehicles and overhead limited to the shipping costs. Lee's account at Citibank Hong Kong was growing. He put his savings in broad based stock market mutual funds specializing in high risk emerging markets. His investments doubled in two years. Lee decided it was time to stop when he was ahead. He was chip his personal 1995 Rolls Silver Cloud convertible, which he had purchased only two months before, to his new home in Hong Kong for his personal use. He did not smuggle the car out in a container marked farming implements like the other cars. He shipped it as his personal vehicle. Lee did not know that U.S. Customs recorded the vehicle identification numbers of every car that left the United States. Lee did not know that it was a crime in California to ship a car out of the country that secured a debt. Working with Customs at every port in the United States is a special agent of the National Insurance Crime Bureau who records the VIN number of every car shipped in its database. Every insurer who is a member of the NICB has access to the database. Each member company records every car reported stolen to that database. When Lee reported his car stolen to the massive and stony insurance company of Pekin, Illinois, they automatically filed filed a report of the theft to the NICB. They assigned an adjuster who began a cursory investigation. The report of the theft was believable and but for the value of the vehicle, a commonplace occurrence in Los Angeles. The adjuster recommended immediate payment. Roger Parsons, the claims supervisor at the similarly fictional Massive and Stony Insurance Company, looking out at his, his window at the slow-moving Brown, Illinois River, was about to order a check for the settlement when he received a report from the NICB that the car had been shipped by Lee to Hong Kong a month before the reported theft customs officials in Hong Kong reported the car arrived and was picked up by its consignee. The NICB had copies available of the shipping documents with Mr. Lee's signature. When the claim was presented and an examination under oath was demanded, the evidence was presented after Lee swore falsely about the theft and the claim was effectively denied. And This was a real and true story, just the names and places were changed to protect the guilt. Other types of staged cases are abandonment, where the owner abandons a vehicle on a city street or in a parking lot, creating a moral hazard. The insured will report the vehicle stolen and attempt to collect before it is recovered. In addition, There is the scheme called dumping. The scheme involves when the owner disposes of a vehicle by dumping it into a lake or other body of water. Cars have been found buried underground, and some lakes have been found to have more than 50 cars underwater. In 2009, even Newsweek reported that a South Carolina man who earlier filed an insurance claim saying his Ford 150 was stolen, police quickly discovered it only miles from his house engulfed in flames. Investigators couldn't find any signs of forced entry, but what they did discover was that the owner was behind on his payments, had refinanced the truck twice, and had lied about it when asked. In a similar incident, a California woman who was no longer willing to fuel up her GMC Yukon, said it disappeared from the parking lot. Actually, she'd arranged to have it chopped up in Mexico and sold off in parts. This type of car insurance fraud occurs when the owner disposes of the vehicle by leaving somewhere, burning it, dumping it in a lake, or even selling it, and then claiming it was stolen. In, In such situations where the car was sold before being reported stolen, the fraud is intended to pay in two ways, through an insurance settlement to replace the stolen vehicle and through the sale of the original car. There are many other schemes of intentional insurance fraud, and they are all available in my book, Zalma on Insurance Claims, Part 109, second edition, which is available as both a Kindle book and as a paperback from Amazon.com. If you found this video to be interesting or useful to you and your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel my blog, and my Substack publications. And please click on the link saying you liked the video or that uh, if you're at rumble.com, that you click on the rumble situation to show the publishers that you found the videos to be useful and interesting. Thank you for your attention.